0: If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3. This week we'll be looking at verses 2, 4 through 7. I want to remind you before I read this text a few things for us to remember. Last week Paul brought us to a graveside. He said we needed to come from the heights of heaven to have a graveside chat to talk about the realities of what people are apart from Christ. If you remember last week, we looked at we were dead people, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, without any hope apart from Christ and His mercy. We were an enslaved people, enslaved to three things, enslaved to the way of this world, enslaved to the devil and the spirit that works within the sons of disobedience, of which we were. And we were also enslaved to ourselves, our own sinful flesh, which desires to serve itself and not God and not others. And finally, we found out that we were a condemned people, condemned because we rightly deserved the wrath of God. And I want to remind you of that again so that as we come to this passage, it just sings to you. Because you need to see, as I said last week, the great depth of our depravity. The reality of who we really are when all the masks are removed, when all the finery of our clothing and our makeup and our jewelry and everything else is removed from us. Apart from Christ, as C.S. Lewis once said, if we were to see ourselves or see someone in that condition, we would run away in fright because they would be a horrific creature. And we need to remember that. And we need to see that for what it really is. Paul did this so that, again, we might revel in what we are because of God's motivation, actions, and purpose towards us who believe in Him. In this passage, we see the truth of Eric Alexander's wonderful statement. That God made the son of His love to become the object of His wrath so that we who were the objects of His wrath might become the sons of His love. So let's now look at this passage I'm going to read all the way from verse 1, and then I'll emphasize as we begin verse 4 through verse 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I want to look at three things this morning about God and what he's done for us. I want to look at his motivation. I want to look at his actions and I want to look at his purpose. And so in order to get into that first point, let's ask this question. What does this text tell us motivated God to do this for us? To show mercy. Well, here's the answer. Because he's full of mercy and love. It's just as simple as that. Notice that nothing in this text tells us that God said, well, you know, Dennis and Jane, well, okay, and Keith and Kay, and maybe Stu. Well, they're really okay people. They just have kind of, they've, they've fallen and, and they just can't get up. But they're still okay. They're just, they just need a little help. That's not what this text says. It says you were dead, but God, because of His rich mercy, because of His great love, saved you by His grace. Is absolutely nothing to do with you at all. From start to finish, from cradle to the grave, salvation is of the Lord. Period. Exclamation point. Nothing additional can be said. Salvation is of the Lord. And so as we come to this text, what I want us then to begin to look at as we look at this motivation is let's take a look at this rich mercy of His. Exodus 34.6 says this, as God passed Moses had asked God, show me your glory. Let me see the glory. And God said, well, I can't show you my face. No one can see my face and live. But I'll show you my backside. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. over you. And as I pass by... Right here, guys. Right there. said, right there. As I pass by... <laughs> as I pass by, what you will see is the backside of my glory. And what I want us to notice here is the backside of God's glory. Listen to this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or in Hebrew it might have been Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is God. And we looked last week and said, somehow wrath and mercy, somehow justice... And grace, somehow holiness and love, wed together in a beautiful reality. And they wed together in a beautiful reality in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revealing the character of God. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, To see me is to have seen the Father. And so as we look at Christ and we see Him, we see what His Father is like. Psalm 145, 8-9, as the psalmist reflected back on what I just read you in Exodus, he said this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. Now see, I want to continue to press this upon you dear ones because this is something that I think we often forget. We are really, truly suspicious of God. We're suspicious of Him. Some of us in this room are suspicious that He's not really as good as He says. He's not really because, look, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand the boss I work for. You don't understand the people I manage. You don't understand the fact that I don't have a job. How can you say God is good? How can you say God is merciful? How can you say God is full of loving kindness? I don't see it. I'm not experiencing it right now. But again, men and women, that opening hymn, didn't it say we praise God the fact that you're healthy enough to be here this morning. To be reminded again that God is good. Even with the skyrocketing prices of gas, most of you found the ability to be here this morning. Who provided you with those resources? Or the ride Of somebody gracious enough to come by and pick you up. Those of you who have children. Are your children relatively healthy? Are they able to be educated in some manner? See, we are far too often suspicious that God is not really as good as He says He is. And notice I haven't even talked about the fact that we are wicked, vile sinners apart from Him. And if nothing else could be said... He's shown us mercy we didn't deserve. See, we need to see how gracious, how kind, how merciful the Father is that not only did He send His Son, but as we've looked at in Ephesians 1, He poured out the Spirit of the living God into us. Not because we were perfect and all cleaned up, but actually while we were yet sinners and defiled. as Micah cried out, Who is a God like thee who passes over the rebellious acts of His possession? Who is a God like that? The God of the Bible. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that kind of God, showing rich and favorable mercy. The word that would often be translated in Hebrew and was translated into Greek, You don't ever have to remember this Hebrew word again, but I'll say it for you anyway. It's a fun word if you want to learn it. It's called chesed. Hebrew is a great language. It's a very masculine language. Men like to say it. Chesed. See, you can say that really strongly and powerfully. What that means is mercy. Isn't that cool that a word that strong, that powerful, that guttural, means covenant faithfulness and mercy. What a beautiful reality of our God. He is faithful and remembers his covenant to his people. In the Old Testament, God's mercy was primarily shown to those who were desperate, hopeless, and helpless. What a comfort. Because some of you may have walked in here this morning feeling just like that. Desperate, hopeless, and helpless. And if you don't feel that way today, life will do something to you at some point to make you feel that way. And you need to remember at that point, life may not look good, but God is always good, always. His mercy is never failing. His mercy also is always, as we saw in those passages, associated with His love and grace. And the fact that Paul uses this great word, rich, is that same idea the fact that His mercy is never ending. It can never run out. Just as surely as the widow who took care of Elijah, the flour never ran out and the oil never ran out, so God's mercy is sufficient every day for that day. And we should trust Him and know that He is at work. The next thing this passage tells us is the reality of God's great love. Romans 5, 5 5-8 says this, And hope does not put us to shame because of God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you hear it? Paul just wants to continue to remind you, you have no idea how amazing it is that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. And I want to say this in all truthfulness and somewhat repentance. In the Protestant churches of America, we have spent so much time suggesting what the Spirit's not still doing in this world that we forget what He is still doing. He is pouring out the love of God in Christ into the heart of every single believer. And the problem is, we often don't believe that. We don't believe He really loves us. For whatever reason. No, I've sinned too much. I've done this. That's why I keep singing, Come Ye Sinners. And you think, well, I'm not in that condition anymore. Why do I need to hear, Come Ye Sinners? Well, you need to hear it because you are a sinner. You do forget. You sometimes do think of your fitness to come to Him. Even as believers, you need to hear the gospel. Even as believers, maybe more so do you need to hear it and be reminded that God's mercy and His love are everlasting. So that when life is full and rich, you don't act like the Jews who forgot the God who had showed mercy and grace to them and said, look at our great cities, look at the great cisterns, look at the fruit trees, which God had warned them and said, you didn't do any of that. I gave it to you as a gift. So we need to once again be reminded. Paul goes on to say this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And 1 John 4, 9 and 10 say this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a subtle little statement there in that 1 John passage, which I think we too often forget as Christians. And that is this, so that we might live through Him You are not alive because of yourselves. Not today. Not tomorrow. Your life is bound to Christ. If Christ was dead, Paul tells us we'd be dead. If Christ is not raised, then you're not raised. If Christ is not ascended, then you have no hope of becoming ascended with Him in glorified states. You have no hope. We're fools and we ought to pack up this church, sell it for what we can get, buy a membership at the local country club and swing our golf clubs and drink wine until we die. Because that's all we get in this life. If Christ is not alive and alive in us, we have no hope. The passage just does not suggest somehow that our deadness has been changed somehow unto ourselves. Our life is bound to Christ. And we have no hope apart from Him. The second point then was His actions. What did God do for us? Look at what these wonderful words tell us. By grace you have been saved. He saved us by His grace. And this reminds us, if you were to go back to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The next part of verse 8 says, which He lavished upon us. God's not chintzy. This is why when we do things as Christians, we ought not do them chintzy and cheaply. We ought to do things well and beautifully because God has lavished us with grace. I sometimes am asked by people, you know, sometimes people come to our home and they say, why would your wife set out all this nice crystal and everything? I mean, we were just having a little dinner. I mean, paper plates would have sufficed. You're right, they would have. And it's not that the hermitings are above using paper plates. We sometimes do. When we have people in our homes, I want you to have an aroma of heaven. I want you to eat off fine plates. Drink out of good crystal. Use real silver. Why? Because I think I ought to spend that money? No, because we've been blessed coming out of a southern culture. That's what you do. You might not get a whole lot of money, but you get a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) And it's been passed on from generation to generation. We have tables sitting in our home that are 150 years old. As my children often marvel at the fact that they're still upheld after 12, 10, and 8 years of of abuse upon that furniture. Not to mention the 150 years prior. But the reality is here is that we ought to lay before people a reality of heaven. Do you think the banquet hall of heaven when Christ sets before us a meal... It's going to merely be paper plates, crock pots, and plastic silverware? God forbid that's the case. It's a feast. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And we need to think about that, men and We need to let that permeate us. And if all you have is paper plates, at least buy Chinette. It doesn't leak. What I want us to see then is the beautifulness of God and His grace. He lavishes it on us. And we need to see that. And we need to remember that. And we need to feel that in our very bones. Also, what I want us to remember is that this is a divine initiative. We see here from these words that salvation was initiated and accomplished by God and God alone. In the three persons of the triune God, which Paul reminded us of in chapter 1. Salvation for Paul always has a past, present, and future component. This is part of the problem with the word saved in our modern culture. We need to recapture this word and give it its biblical understanding. And so I'm going to give it to you now so you can recapture it, at least in this small section of Tucson, and hopefully we'll spread it. For Paul, salvation has these three components. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Always. Always. When Paul says the word salvation or the word saved, he means the past realities of what I am in Christ, the present realities of what Christ is doing in me, and the future realities that yet are held out for me when one day, someday, Christ steps back into this world and says, done, over, come up to me, my people. And we long for that day. But let us never forget that that's the idea of when we're being saved by grace, it's not just a past event, it's not just a present reality, and it's not just a future hope. It is a reality that both stems all the way back to eternity past, all the way into eternity future, and was realized in real time and space on a cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Thus, salvation is all of God by His grace and found only, as I've said before, in our being united to Christ. What does this salvation include? Well, look what the passage tells us. It says this, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He raised us from the dead. When Christ was risen from the dead, we were raised. We were made alive. And we need to realize that. When Christ was raised, we're so connected to Christ in our union with Him that His life and our life, as I said before, are wedded together. When Christ was made alive, we were made alive. When Christ was raised up, as the passage back up in verse 20 tells us, remember what it said up there in chapter 1, verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. When He raised Christ up and seated Him at His right hand, we were ascended with Christ Not to sit at God's right hand, remember when we looked at that passage before, it's interesting that Paul tells us we were raised with Christ. He does not say that we sit at God's right hand, removing from us the idea that somehow we attain the deity. We are not ever going to be deity, but we are united to Christ. And we need to just be willing at times, sometimes people, to say, well, what does that look like, Dennis? I'm sorry in our scientific world that we are driven towards quantifying everything. But you know what? Mystery is a part of the gospel. I don't necessarily understand how we're united to Christ. I just know that we are. I can't explain to you all the interesting nuances of what that be. I can tell you all the things it represents. But I can't tell you how God does it. And we need to be willing to be satisfied that God does it. It's a part of trusting God, which we are called and commanded to do. Finally, the idea that we're seated with Christ means that the future hope that Paul lays out for the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians that one day we will judge the nations is a reality that waits for us. As Paul says here, "...and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ." The idea there is that we sit with Christ now as He governs the nations. We're sitting there with Him. That's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says... Look into heaven where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Fix your eyes on the heavenly things. Not so that you can be otherworldly minded, but so that you can actually do this world some meaningful good in the days you have. See, this is the false notion. Paul's theology is this reality. If you really get your eyes fixed on Christ, if you really believe He rules over the nations now, then you realize that we have work to do in this life as Paul's going to tell us in the next few verses. We weren't created to sit around and go, boy, it'll sure be good when Jesus comes back. We were created to work and be faithful, pursue life with gusto, to really teach the world what carpe diem means, to seize the day while the day is at hand, and to live with fervent faith and belief that God really is true, that he really is saving people among whom that great crowd is, us. And so that people might see it and they might revel in what God is doing. And finally, our final point, his purpose, we ask this question why did God do this? Well, if you'll remember back, three times Paul tells us this in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, with verse 14 ending this way To the praise of his glory God did it for his glory God did it because he's worth it God did it because somehow when he does the things that he does glory abounds to him and see men and women this is why coming to church on Sunday mornings is not a waste of our time it's rather one of the most awesome things we do because during the week you can have your quiet times And you can even sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can be an encouragement to one another. But when we gather here, and when men and women gather all over this city in churches, and when they gather all over this country, and all over this world, this great collection of the people of God begin to sing out to the praise of His glorious grace. And in that, God is honored and glorified. Your neighbors may not ever understand why you get up and go to church. Hopefully, you'll tell them. But they may not ever understand it. But the reality is that every time you and your family pack up your car and head off to church on Sunday mornings, you declare and proclaim that God is real and that he has done what he said he has done and he's doing what he says he will do and he will do what he's promised he will do. And the reality is is that we see it, and we declare to people, and we sit in this midst, and we praise his name, and we remind one another, God has not failed. Just look around you. God has not failed. There are people sitting in this room right now, proof positive that Christ is ruling, and that he is bringing men and women to himself. Romans nine twenty two through 26 may, that passage which most people hate, Romans 9, and wish they could strick it from the Bible. But let's see if we can't, in this idea, catch glimpses of what Paul was saying there and what he's saying here. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, both things we've looked at previously in Ephesians, His power and the fact of His wrath. But look at what he then goes on to say. What if to make known his power has endured much with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles as indeed he says in hosea those who were not my people i will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call Beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, You are not My people, they will be called sons of the living God. Somehow, God's glory and the benefit of His people are wedded and entwined together and cannot be removed. And so, what we see then is this. Look at what Paul says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I think the reason why Paul uses that plurality of ages is because what he wants you to get this idea of is kind of like that song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. That idea of His love just overwhelming you like a wave just pouring over you. Vast, unmeasured, Boundless, free, flowing as a mighty ocean over you and me. That's what it is like. God basically, Paul is saying to us, God throughout the ages, beginning now and throughout all eternity, as far as your mind can conceive and beyond it, God's loving kindness is going to continue to be poured out upon his people. Maybe not the way the world thinks it ought to look. But God continues to conform you and shape you and build you into His people. And somehow that ought to overwhelm us and grip us. In conclusion, then the Gospel is clear that the work of Jesus Christ was an act of God's unmerited favor. It is. It's an act of His unmerited favor. His rich mercy, love and grace to us. Paul here, as in other places, safeguards the gospel from those who would seek to place any distortion on why God did what he did for us. God didn't look down the corridor of times and see Dennis and say, well, he's going to be a decent guy, we just got to give him a little help and clean him up. That's not what God did. God looked down the corridor of time and said, Dennis is a wicked, vile, horrible human being. But I will show mercy because I will show mercy. I will show love because I want to love. And also, on why God did what he did for us and what his desire is for us. Let us be clear. There is no salvation apart from Christ. Perfect obedience, earning us righteousness. And for us, and his substitutionary atonement and death, dying and enduring God's wrath for us. Men and women, there are quarters where the gospel is under attack. And we must never let it be taken from us. Christ perfectly obeyed for us. He earned us righteousness. We can never earn it ourselves. And he died the death we deserved enduring the wrath of God. And because of that, we were able to stand as God's people. So let us leave here this morning with three things. Maybe more, but at least three, three things. A joyous song of praise in our hearts of God's redeeming love. Con- continued zeal to fight against the tendency to doubt the wealth of God's mercy, to doubt the greatness of His love, to doubt the fullness of salvation which comes by grace alone. And the third thing then is this, with a compelling desire to display God's glory by showing in the way we live and in what we say to others, not only the reality of His great act of loving kindness at the cross, but also the glories of that await us throughout the coming ages. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.